Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Ed Ayers. Joanne, Nathan, our colleague Brian Ballow, and I are all historians. Each week, we explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. Now, you may have heard the name Blake Farenholt in the news earlier this year. Farenholt was a Republican congressman from Texas. He resigned this April after it was revealed that he had used taxpayer money to settle a sexual harassment suit by a former staff member. But that's not the only time Farenholt made the news. In 2017, he was so angry at three fellow Republicans, senators who opposed the GOP health care overhaul, that he challenged them to a duel, or would have if they weren't ladies. So Farenholt said, if it was a guy from South Texas, I might ask him to step outside and settle this Aaron Burr style. (laughs) Well, this reminds me of two other congressmen. William Graves from Kentucky and Jonathan Silly of Maine. Oh, come on, come on, come on. No, really, his name is Silly, <laughs> but it's C-I-L-L-E-Y. Okay. In February of 1838, Jonathan Silly stood up in Congress and belittled a newspaper that had insulted the Democrats, which was his party. Where's the newspaper from? New York. Okay. So the New York editor hears this and races down to Washington to defend his name and asks his buddy, William Graves, to deliver a note to Silly asking him about the insult and asking him to explain himself. But Silly wouldn't take the note because he didn't think much of the newspaper editor. Mm. This puts Graves in a tricky spot. He doesn't know what to do. He asks his friends. Am I insulted? Should I be insulted? And they basically say, well, yeah, you are have been kind of insulted because he won't deal with you or your friend. And so he decided he was going to have to challenge Silly to a duel. Well, it seems <laughs> logical. That's right. Well, I have so, to defend my name. So if I don't respond you know? to email, I'm walking into a possible <laughs> pistol fight? Is that right? <laughs> we're, we're all in trouble. Yeah, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> Okay, so on the afternoon of February 24th, these two lawmakers met in a grassy field in Bladensburg, Maryland. This was a popular spot for duels back in the day, congressional and otherwise, because it was close to Washington. Silly, as the guy who was challenged to the duel, got to choose the weapons, and he opted for rifles. Rifles? I know. (laughs) I was waiting for that response. I was waiting for that response. New Englanders tend to like to duel with rifles because they're used to using rifles. They don't play. That's right. Yeah. Southerners like pistols. That's the odds of a second duel, I would think. Well, so they must have been, like, very far apart to have those big guns trained on each other. Like, how far apart? Yeah, they were really big. Almost as tall as me, although I guess that's maybe not saying much because I'm short. (laughs) But... Aside from that, you're right. And so, yeah, they were positioned about 80 yards apart. Oh, almost a football Very far field. apart. Okay. Yeah, so they're far apart. Yeah. There was a, a local farm boy who saw what was happening and, of course, pretty much very quickly figured out what was going on and was chatting with 
Graves, and Graves said something along the lines of, well, there's no chance of anyone hitting anybody at this distance. I mean, I couldn't hit anything from this distance, which, of course, is sad and wrong. They exchange fire once and silly misfires because he doesn't really know a lot about shooting rifles. Yeah. Even though he chose the weapon? Okay. Yeah, he did choose the weapon, but that doesn't mean he knew how to use it. Then they shoot the second time at each other, and Graves misfires. And these guys can't take a hint, huh? I know, you would think that, that the fates would say, <laughs> yeah. well, maybe we should stop. But Graves is so mortified that he says, well, I need another shot. I need one more shot. And of course, at the third shot, he actually hits and kills Silly. So Silly dies. One congressman kills another in a duel, which obviously is a big deal. There was a huge funeral. The president attends. Well, what happened to Graves? Was he marked for life as a murderer? Not if it's a duel. No. Um, as a matter of fact, when they talk about this, everyone says the exact same thing, which is so unfortunate. They had nothing really against each other. They didn't even really know each other. It was a, a sort of fine point of dueling etiquette that made... Graves feel that he had been insulted because Silly wouldn't accept that note from Graves. Now, I have to say, this sounds to me like nothing so much as junior high. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So how did the United States Congress find itself entangled in something so, from our eyes, well, silly? (laughs) <laughs> and that was, at the outset, I was going to say, it is the silly Graves duel. Grave and silly, <laughs> no, for sure. What's really sort of fueling them is their idea, their understanding of honor, the, the sort of honor culture of the time, which doesn't mean the same thing as it means now. We have now, we think of honor as just, well, I'm a good guy. I'm an honorable guy. It had a much deeper meaning in this time period. It is based on how you appear to others. It was something meaningful. It was something actually was worth dying over. So today on the show, what honor meant to earlier generations of Americans and what it means today. Honor may sound like a benign concept, but it's actually been pretty toxic. In fact, the obsession with honor helps explain a lot of the violence in American history. We'll hear how honor culture ruled the South before the Civil War and then migrated West. We'll also discuss an honor killing in a Sicilian-American family that was kept secret for 80 years. And we'll learn just how personal honor can be, even for us here on Backstory. So, Joanne, help me out for a second. I'm still trying to figure out why Silly and Graves dueled over something that seemed so trivial, like a letter. Well, as a matter of fact, Americans in the 19th century had a very different understanding of honor than we do today. It does not mean moral character. It does not mean virtuous behavior. It's a way of defining your self-worth based on your reputation in your community. This is historian Lorian Foote. And if you are insulted or if something happens to damage that reputation, then you're shamed. And so shaming is a public exposure that you have lost your worth in the eyes of the community. Another way that I talk about this with people, you know, there's that famous little ditty, 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And we say that because we're trying to teach children, it doesn't matter what other people say about you, um, as long as you're doing the right thing, that's what matters. That concept is foreign to people in an honor culture. Everything hinges on what people say about you. Think about it this way. If you're publicly insulted, even if it's in front of just one person, your reputation would be damaged and you'd have to do something to repair that damage. And so shaming requires a public vindication of that worth and a reestablishing of your reputation in your community. Sometimes things could be smoothed over with an elaborate system of apologies, but unfortunately, as we saw in the Silly Gray's duel, more often public vindication came through violence. Foote has studied the impact of honor culture in the Union Army during the Civil War. She says that the obsession with honor and reputation fueled the war. There are men in the Union Army who think that the war itself is an affair of honor, <laughs> that um, those who are fighting against the United States flag, they have assaulted the honor of all of those who support the United States. And, and they even refer in their letters home to this duel against the South. <laughs> you know, I mean, they'll, a really, they'll really, refer really to the big war duel. <laughs> Yeah, a really big deal, but they refer to it that way. Um, Mm. Then the other thing I think that's really important is for men of honor, their regiment becomes their peer community that is either giving them worth or is shaming them. So Mm. honor is a critical guide for how men behaved in battle, how they behave in camp. It was an incredible pressure point to keep men in the ranks, to keep them fighting uh, against the enemy. And then it also mattered because it kept them fighting in their own camps (laughs) and it created discipline problems and lost the Union Army manpower at critical times during the war. So how did that play out? How did that manifest itself? What would that look like? In action. So if you're a man who wants to establish your manhood and honor in a regiment, that's going to become clear during altercations and discussions with other men. Every uh, group of men that is guided by honor, they have rituals that they use to defend that honor if they have been shamed or publicly insulted. Whether it's Um, You've insulted me, so I'm going to issue a written challenge to a duel, whether it's you've insulted me, so I am going to um, ask you to fight me with fists. There is some kind of ritual where everyone recognizes the language that's intended or the action that's intended to be the insult. Everyone recognizes the response to that insult, and everyone recognizes the action that then vindicates your, your worth again in front of your peers. So the, the, there's the concept of honor, there's then the language that sort of yes. touches on it, and then there's the ritual that deals with the damage caused by the language. Yes, that's a great way to sum it up. So, for example, let's say two men are kind of starting to have a disagreement and the disagreement begins to escalate. If one of the men calls the other one a liar, a puppy, a coward, that is an immediate signal to the other person and to everyone who's watching that he is now trying to shame him. Right, right. Now, I think probably people would understand 
coward and liar as trigger words, but but for our backstory listeners, maybe tell them why puppy is such an insulting word. <laughs> well, because you're saying that you're worth no more than a, a little puppy dog under my feet. So if the other man does not care about that, I mean, he'll he'll just go on and you know, keep the discussion at a level that we might recognize where it's just words. But if it's a man of honor, as soon as he hears the words puppy, liar, or coward, he is going to say, I will fight you. I will go out and fight you with fists, or I will go outside the lines and we will fight. Okay. Well, so why don't you give us an example of how an affair of honor played out in the Union Army? So there's a very famous incident in the Union Army where one brigadier general, Jefferson C. Davis, not the Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, um, kills another Union brigadier general, William Bull Nelson, in a hotel in Louisville as the Union Army is trying to prepare itself for the fact that Confederate armies are invading Kentucky. This is in the fall of 1862. And they have an altercation that ends up with Davis throwing puppy, coward, liar at Nelson, Nelson responding, but then Nelson slaps Davis in the face in front of numerous witnesses. And then Nelson stomps off and Davis takes a pistol from somebody who's standing nearby. He follows Nelson and he shoots him. Okay, so Nelson is not armed. This was not a duel. Davis shot him. Jefferson C. Davis will never be court-martialed or prosecuted for this crime. And what is interesting is it's because most of the men in the army um, that, that, that Davis was associated with didn't view it as a crime. The reaction of most of the enlisted men was that Nelson had deserved to die because he had given Davis an and I'm quoting here from a guy, uh, one soldier's letters to his family, Nelson had given Davis a, quote, unbearable insult. Well, that makes sense. And actually, I mean, based on what you just said, a man of honor, of course, say it's that initial assault that was the crime, right? He right. committed a crime and then was punished for it by being shot. Right. The so slap the in most... the face. I mean, that, and I mean, to slap someone in an honor culture, I mean, that is the most the most intense shaming that you can inflict on someone um, besides pulling their nose. Uh, right. But, you know, that, that kind of... Right, known as a nose tweaking, which I love the phrase. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but I mean, because you're manhandling somebody in front of other people, it shows you have no respect. And you have to reestablish that respect by saying, my honor matters to me so much, I'm going to return to this man what he what he gave to me, which is basically a public death. Well, right. And if you are a man of honor, and this is a matter of honor that you're tending to, you kind of would put yourself above the law anyway. Well, it's a matter of honor. It's a matter between gentlemen. That's it's right. It's not something that can be tended to by law. Yes. But what's interesting is there were men in the army who weren't men of honor because so many immigrants and groups had come into the North that it created a, a more diverse society so that there wasn't one peer group that people were referencing that is kind of required for honor. They just thought that honor was something that promoted violence and um, was not a good way to order your life because they believed that your self-worth should not be based on the opinion of others and your reputation in the community. And also because of the influence of many of the religious groups in the North, 
that they believed that your self-worth comes from your conscience, your moral character, and from God. They did not understand this incident, and they thought that Davis should have been court-martialed for murder. And they say things in their letters such as, the provocation was trivial. And I think those two reactions, the unbearable insult versus the provocation was trivial, get us to the heart of the difference between men who were guided by honor and men who were not. Lorian Foote is a historian at Texas A&M University and author of The Gentleman and the Roofs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army. So, Ed, we're hearing a lot about, uh, in that interview with Lorian Foote, Northern Honor, Mm -hmm. but of course... Most of what people talk about when they talk about honor and think about honor is Southern honor. I do declare. (laughs) (laughs) You have so many talents, Nathan, that I'm just learning (laughs) through the process. But what would you say, Ed, that's distinctively Southern? Or is there something that's distinctively Southern about honor? And, And why was it so important to Southerners? You know, Joanne, the main thing about Southern honor is that it's in the South and that it is so widespread. And as Lorian Foote says, it's a system of values where you have the value that other people acknowledge mm-hmm. in you, that mm-hmm. there's not a sense that you have an intrinsic worth that is somehow independent of what other people might say about you, right? Right. So I was trying to explain why rates of violence have been higher in the American South for as long as we have records, up to today. Um, And I was trying to find out why that's the case in the very early and mid-19th century. I went back and, you know, we're not surprised, as Nathan's uh, ventriloquism suggested, that uh, (laughs) Southern planters believed that they were honorable men who had to adjudicate conflicts among themselves through paces and pistols and all that sort of stuff, right? So we'd sort of heard of that Southern honor. But when you started looking more closely, you found that poor whites were acting the same way, where somebody would call them a name and they felt they had no choice but to fight back with violence. And among enslaved people, when they would find that somebody had challenged them in some way, there would be an immediate violent attack. So the thing is, I saw this elaborate network of honor. Everybody understood what everybody else was fighting over, but you wouldn't fight with just anybody. You know, if you're an elite man, you don't pay any attention to some redneck who's challenging you. He does not deserve Mm -hmm. to be able to call you to a duel. If you're a white man, you're not supposed to pay attention to something that a black man would say about you. And then, of course, women have a key place in all of this. You know, we know about Scarlett O'Hara and how she was fluttering among all the bows <laughs> who admire her and all that. Uh, but the one thing that was guaranteed, no matter the class of or the race of the men fighting, was over the reputation of a woman to whom they were related, a spouse or daughter or sister or mother. And so you found this great tangle of culture that seemed to be feeding violence at lots of different levels. So that's what honor looked like when I looked for it in the antebellum South, Joanne. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no. And I would would say I think it's hard for us to connect with the importance that people put on 
their value as seen by other people. They're, yeah. they're, you know, the, the degree to which, like in the Silly Graves duel, you were willing to risk your life to preserve your name or your reputation, mm. your honor. Right. I mean, right. that's that's a serious, you know, literally life-threatening right. way of understanding this concept. It's like the ultimate, that's part of why I got interested in the first place was, you know, duels. How does that make sense? Right. Yeah, I think it raises a, a powerful point about even our own sense of ourselves as a country. If we, we, we define ourselves as a nation of laws, so much of what you all have been talking about is actually what happens outside of the realm of law, right? These are people who are adjudicating these disputes in pre-dawn duels or through kinds of conversations. And to think that American culture is much more of an honor culture than we might normally think of, I think is a really profound statement. I mean, as much as we rely on the Constitution or the courts, there's a whole realm of political contestation um, that exists far beyond the realm of the law. And there was another kind of contestation too, Nathan, which was that of evangelical religion which mm. denies the power of honor. If you think about the language of Christianity, it's to turn the other cheek. It's mm. to ignore these kinds of challenges. This is to ignore the legitimacy of violence. So I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that everybody in Annabelle America was swept right. up in this, but you'd certainly see that it was enormously powerful in certain contexts, which is the great contribution that Joanne's made. So you called on me before. I'm going to call on you now. <laughs> where, where have you discovered honor, Joanne? In politics. And what's really interesting to me is that in these earlier periods, when you're fighting political battles, you still, if you say during a congressional debate that someone is lying, then you still are going to get accused of dishonoring him, and you might end up going out to a field and shooting at each other. So that shapes debate. And you're too polite to say, Northerners as well as Southerners did it. So uh, yes. this idea <laughs> that there's Southern honor uh, needs to be revised. And I think what, that's what Laurie and Foote was showing. There are certain contexts in which Northerners and Army being one of them, Congress being another, in which the spirit of honor would rise to the surface. Right. Well, one thing I discovered is that the Civil War shattered a lot of that, mm. that uh, dueling dies off really quickly in the South after the Civil War. Well, what does it do in Congress? Do you have a sense, Joanne? When the Southerners leave, a lot of honor violence leaves with them. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah. And when they come back and they just happen to fall back into that same kind of behavior, that war has happened. The North has won. And the North basically sees themselves as having a cultural victory in addition right. to a military victory. So they scorn it. Yeah. So if honor dies in Congress after the Civil War, and I have every reason to believe you, Joanne, you have some, you're someone of <laughs> sterling character, <laughs> what, what happens in the South itself? I mean, is there, is there some transformation that occurs around honor? Ed? Well, the post-war South becomes a notoriously violent place with the rates of homicide apparently just skyrocketing. There's a lot of guns around, and there's a lot of people who are still very touchy about their honor, even mm -hmm. if they're not taken to the dueling fields. The other thing that happens is that a large part of this is exported to the American West, what we think of as the Old West right. and the gunslinging. That's <laughs> dueling in many ways with a six-shooter, right? right? You're standing there facing each other and not drawing until the other one does and all that sort of stuff. But more tragically, lynching really explodes in uh, 25 or 30 years after the Civil War. Obviously, it has the, just the sheer terrorism effect. 
But the defenders of lynching at the time said, no, uh, this is to show black people that we are going to defend the virtue of white women, even though that's not really the cause of a lot of these lynchings. Yeah, I mean, it really does sound like you go from an individualized notion of honor to something that's more collective or community. I mean, I have to imagine among African-Americans to prove that one is no longer a piece of property, right, requires a certain amount of fighting for one's honor. And, and the South as a defeated country um, reintegrated also, I'm sure, has t- taken a real hit that lynching and other kinds of you know, political assertion are trying to reclaim that honor of the South. I mean, I'm guessing even the statues themselves that emerge in response to the Confederate defeat are an effort at least to publicly display some kind of regional honor. Would you say so? I would. And you see what it is that they emphasize, which is honor on the battlefield, Mm -hmm. the honor Mm -hmm. of violence, the honor of manhood put at risk. Right. So I do think all these pieces fit together. And this culture of honor, as you see, saturates a large part of American history. A warning, this next story contains disturbing descriptions of violence against women. Several years ago, Karen Tintori discovered a devastating family secret. She's a journalist and writer from a close-knit Italian-American family. And while she knew a lot about her father's side of the family, she realized she knew very little about her mother's family, which had emigrated from Sicily in the early 20th century. So she started asking her grandmother, her mother, and her aunts some questions. But for some reason, they didn't want to talk. They would say, okay, come over on Tuesday. And then Monday night, I'd get a phone call. Well, no, grandma's a doctor's appointment, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't realize for many years that I was getting the runaround. She finally managed to get her grandmother to agree to speak with her about the family. And I walked in, and my grandmother was already agitated and sputtering in Sicilian to my aunt, who's she going to show, who's she going to tell? And on the corner of the table was an old shoebox filled with documents. And the top one was a family passport. And my Aunt Grace opened it up and pointed to a line in the list of children that had been obliterated with a black pen. And she said, that's the one they got rid of. Did your mother ever tell you? And it took and about another hour for her to explain that my grandmother had a sister next to her, a year younger, who was murdered by her brothers about 1920 in Detroit in an honor killing. Tintori spent more than a decade piecing together the whole story. She eventually published a book about her great-aunt's murder. She learned that the one they got rid of was her grandmother's sister, a girl named Frances. She'd come with her siblings and parents to Detroit from Sicily in 1914. But Frances disappeared from the census records in 1920. She would have been about 16 years old. And she had been promised to a, quote, mafioso, who was 20 years older than she was by her father. And 
Because she broke that engagement and she eloped with the man she was in love with, her older brothers were very upset with her that she had blackened the family name, she had dishonored the family by disobeying the father, and by ruining their chances to get uh, a leg up in a better street gang. The brothers took matters into their own hands. They were so angry with her that they kidnapped her and they took her to Belle Isle, which is an island in the Detroit River. And the story was that they cut off her hands and her feet and weighted her down with cement and threw her in. What led you to call this an honor killing? Everyone in the family, when we talked to them, said it was an honor killing because she dishonored the family. She blackened the family name. When I called my mother later that day and said, is what Gracie told me true? She said, oh, she had hot pants and she was fooling around with boys in the alley. And that Hmm. did not make sense to me at all. And I thought, you know what? She was 16 and no matter what she did, if she did anything, she didn't deserve the fate she got. Yeah. But to that older generation of the family in Sicily and transplanting that culture to the United States, the honor of the family was tied up in the chastity of the women, the appropriate conduct of the women, the way they dressed, the way they behaved, obedience, and uh, just not doing anything out of line in public. Because to do that would bring shame on the men. Oh, to do, yes. Yes. It was, it was control, I guess is what you want to say, that the men could not keep their women under control. That dishonored the men, that they weren't, I guess that it boils down to virility and manliness. And if they couldn't keep their women in control, then they weren't really men. Absolutely. It's, honor is always <laughs> in some way about manhood. Yes. Whether it's fighting a duel or killing your sister because she goofed up your chances to run in a better mob. Wow. In reconstructing this, did you? how much did you find out about Frances and who she was and what her life was like? Well, when my mom was dying, one of the younger brothers, her, her uncle, came to visit and he was the one, when he was a little boy, he hated his older brothers for murdering Francis and vowed that he was going to grow up and kill them. He said that she was sweet, that she would take any little money that she had and buy the little brother's ice cream, and that she was really the sweetest and the kindest of all the sisters. And did you get any sense of, of what her life was like before she eloped? Well, here she is murdered in 1920 about right when women in this country are getting the right to vote, <gasps> when everything is opening up. I mean, the future that she would have had had she had she been allowed to grow up. Women, basically, they cooked, they cleaned, they ironed. I understand that the brothers threw their shirts down. Uh, you know, they'd wear their shirts, two, three shirts a day. And then she, like my grandmother, being the two girls, the f- first two girls, would do the cooking, the cleaning, the ironing with the starch, and it was pretty much a life of toil. Now, how did your family respond as you began unraveling this? Well, it was quite interesting. My mother, of course, was outraged that I was going to follow up or ask any more questions. And part of my family was horrified by the news of of this family secret that had been kept for 80 years. My mom said... We heard about it when we were little kids and our parents thought we were sleeping. I would hear my mother and her sisters talking about Francis and crying. So you're putting together this amazing story. So then what led you to go the next step and then to publish it in some way? 
Well, because of the stigma and the honor of my own family, you know, in telling this tale that they thought was so horrific, I thought, you know what, we're we're honoring the bad guys by protecting them from what they did and and dishonoring her. The the night they murdered her, they came back and destroyed everything of hers, her pictures, her clothing, and I just thought, no, I have to give her back her name. There's a Jewish curse, may your name and your memory be erased. And that's what I thought of when I saw that line obliterated in the passport and that they burned everything of hers that night. It was like they obliterated her as if she never existed. So in telling this story about this honor killing, basically you were um, redeeming her honor in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So over the course of, of researching the book and writing about it, did you come to feel differently about your family's honor? It, that's an interesting question. I did. I, I had considered honor, but not exactly in the word honor. There's an Italian word, vergogna. The vergogna is the, is the, is the shame. You know, so shame was more the word than honor. And the shame was on the brothers. The shame was not on, on Francis. Right. I mean, it was okay for them. That didn't dishonor the family, that they murdered their own flesh and blood. It's mind-boggling. Has the, your family's sense of themselves changed now that the secret is out? I think there's a sense of relief and a sense of closure. Hmm. Some of the women cousins we've talked about going to Belle Isle and, and doing a memorial service for her, but we have not yet been able to do that. It, when you go to Belle Isle, there's a beautiful Scott fountain there, and people would go because it was like a wedding cake of a fountain, and the bridal party would go down there. My parents went. My Aunt Grace went. We have wedding pictures of everybody, everybody gathered around the fountain. And you go to the island and go, well, was, did they kill her on this side? Did they kill her on that side? Hmm. You know, it's like if we, if we kind of knew where she was, we could really honor her by doing something like that. So your your family comes from Sicily to Detroit. Did you, In all of your research, and you did so much, did you get a sense of what that world would have been like coming from Italy to America, how different it was or how similar it was? In Italy, in Sicily, they came from poverty and they lived in stone houses and, and scrabbled for for something to eat. And America was a promise of, you know, food on the table and a better and a better life for the family, but it was also an insular community in the Detroit area. Uh, they brought, you know, the food and the customs and the and the culture with them. They just lived in different kinds of homes. Huh. So so in a sense, I mean, the the family it got transported to America and by being in a Sicilian Italian community, Everyone else sort of shared that same sense of honor and family honor, and so they all felt bound by the same rules and by the same customs and I guess by the same demands, it sounds like. Yes, and, and it's not just limited to the Detroit area. Uh, as the When the book came out, the feedback that I've received from readers who grew up in a Sicilian-American family has been astounding. Hmm. Some people were upset because they said, oh, well, that didn't happen in my family. And it gives a bad name to Sicilians. You know, you're right. dishonoring Sicilians by publishing right. this story because it's reflecting right. badly upon us. Right. But one woman wrote to me and she said, 70 years old, she said, all my life I thought it was my fault. And now I understand where all of this honor and, you know, female second place business came from. It's, it's such an amazing thing, you know, because... Um, 
this kind of honor culture generally, it's obviously deeply powerful to the people who are in it, right? It means a lot to the family. It means a lot to the community. It's this enormous network. And then it's a thing that no one talks about. That's the omerta. That's the, you know, keep quiet, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down. And obey. But it shows you it shows you how absolutely powerful it is, right? If no one even needs to talk about it, it's just something that everyone knows is the way things should be. Exactly. It ripples out like a pebble in a pond, and it, it does. It affects, it affects everybody. Karen Tintori is a journalist and author of Unto the Daughters, The Legacy of an Honor Killing in a Sicilian-American Family. So listening to that interview with Karen Tintori, um, it was pretty gripping in terms of just how grisly some of the consequences of honor culture can be and the ways in which women are oftentimes forced to bear an unfair burden for the honor of, you know, male counterparts in the family, even the family name. Just, you know, as, as a point of, of broader fact, I mean, it's true that in many families in the 20th century, really, you know, women were oftentimes forced to, you know, give away children that were coming from so-called illegitimate relationships. There's a long history of this kind of marginalization directed against women. And believe it or not, I was sent away from my mother in 1978 to live in Jamaica with family members because of what my arrival as a so-called illegitimate child meant to the family name. You know, my mother was involved in what was considered to be by the small kind of niche community of New England where she was from and the smaller black community within that community to be involved in a dishonorable relationship with a lower class black man. And so it, it, it was something that I heard on several levels as Tintori was mm. detailing what happened to that distant kind of great aunt, but also what the broader costs of honor culture were for women. Hmm. Did, I hope you don't mind my asking this, Nathan, but was this mm-hmm. something that was talked about in your family? No. And like uh, Karen, I'm actually in the process of writing about this now and running up against the same kinds of silences within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it also goes back to you know the work that you and Ed do, which is that these kinds of questions of honor are both profoundly intimate, but also you know almost sociological or like anthropological, right? I mean, they raise the biggest possible questions about how we live in our society. So. Nathan, Joanne, do we think that honor and shame have really lost their currency in American life today? They were so powerful for so long. Where are we now? Well, it sure sounds like, based on all the stories that we've been talking about in this episode, it's not so much that it vanishes. It just shapes and reshapes and reshapes itself. Right. And it's easy to miss it for that reason, but that I don't think that means it's gone. I think, Nathan, your story shows that there's a, a real power to this that persists and that in one way or another, all of us have felt in our lives. I, I think that's right. And I, I actually can, can attest this too, and I'm sure you all can, in, in, in even in teaching. You know, I, I had the opportunity to teach some high school students um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, right, from 1850, writing about the 1640s. In The Scarlet Letter, of course, you have Hester Prynne, the protagonist who has a child out of wedlock and is forced to wear a red letter A for adultery, right? The Scarlet Letter meant to bear her shame for all the community to see. 
And, you know, you get some high schoolers, which is, again, high school is a small community where a lot of kids are trying to save face and there's a sense of honor there, right, in stature. And they totally, you know, were drawn into this story about the 17th century. And then you think, obviously, the culture around, you know, street vendettas that get settled oftentimes violently, the cone of silence that happens in certain, you know, law enforcement agencies or even, you know, reputation.com as a site that's meant to basically clean your reputation or restore your honor on the internet. I would say there, there are dozens of different ways in which our contemporary life is awash in concerns about honor. Well, right. And I, and I think right there, I think that's um, a way in which, I suppose, honor in a way, although we're not calling it that, um, has a new kind of a power because of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, e- there, you're told all the time to think about what you put out there because it will affect your reputation and it will never go away and it could sort of stain the perception of who you are. And you're supposed to always worry about what other people can see about you <laughs> and what you're putting online. So, you know, right. in some ways, it, it's it's hearkening right back to everything that we're talking about and that people have to worry about their reputation. It's just in a, in a different kind of a way. And it's interesting, too, that we have some of the oldest language about honor and shame of uh, cuckoldry uh, has now returned now as the worst thing you could say about somebody is that they're a cuck, right? So isn't that spooky? How this is sort of... (laughs) (laughs) That's one word for it. (laughs) Yeah. So it just makes you realize how woven into Western culture, at least, Mm -hmm. uh, these concepts are. Yeah, call it honor 2.0, right? I mean, it's, it's every, everything that was concerning the ancient world, but like ramped up with with like digital speed for sure. That makes me really scared of honor 3.0, though, Nathan. I don't know. <laughs> you got to love progress, folks. We wanted to end the show by getting a better sense of how else Americans understand honor today. So we talked to some people who take the concept very seriously. On my honor, I will try to serve God in my country, to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, and to live by the Girl Scout law. The Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America have always made honor a centerpiece of their organizations. So the Backstory team asked local scouts, what does honor mean to you? I really thought about it, and I really think that anyone can be honor. Anyone can be honorable or honor someone. Like, obeying someone, sort of, like... Honoring someone is like doing things for them, like for someone who like stands out. Uh, to me, honor is a promise um, to yourself. It's not exactly a rule because you can break it, I guess, at any time you want to. But I like to keep it. <laughs> I guess, yeah. Um, honor means to me that like you're trustworthy and people can respect you. I think honor means respect. Respect. That you're showing respect for him or the promise. Him or her or the promise. Honor is who you are, is your trust, your reputation, and all that. All that. <laughs> 
to me. Um, honor means that it's uh, kind of like a pinky promise, and you can't break a pinky promise, so an honor lives on for a very long time. It is very, sometimes very hard for some people to be honorable or honor someone, but I think it can be helpful or kind, nice to someone else. And that's what I think honor means. Those were voices of scouts from Boy Scout Troop 75 and Girl Scout Troop 803 in the Charlottesville area. That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Robin Blue. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.